This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in the Word this this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your Word. In your Word we read that it is your Word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Again and again, the Scriptures are referred to under this metaphor of light and illumination. For it is through your revelation of yourself and your revelation about your creation that we are enlightened on as to the nature of reality. And only when we conform to your word are we living on the basis of reality as you have created it. And anything else is just living upon a fantasy of our own, of our own thinking, our own generation. And Father, we pray that as we come together now to focus upon your word that You would help us to understand the things that we study, to see their impact on how we think and how we live, and that we may respond to the teaching of your word with uh, true application. And this is only done as a result of God the Holy Spirit making it clear to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, before we begin our study today in Colossians 1.24, so you can go ahead and turn there. I want to make a couple of comments in relation to some current events and some things that are going to happen this week so that you are forewarned a little bit and can make this a matter of prayer. On Tuesday, September the 20th, day after tomorrow, the United Nations General Assembly is going to convene for their fall session. Some of you are aware of this, some of you are not. And the Palestinian Authority is going to... uh, appeal for a U.N. resolution to recognize Palestinian statehood. This has been a matter in the news for the last three or four months. This is something that is just absolutely horrible. The consequences, if this occurs, are going to be uh, to inflame the tensions between the Palestinians and the Israeli government even more. It is not a way toward peace, which is what their propaganda seeks to assert, but it is indeed a violation of international law as the U.N. continues since their U.N. resolution of 181 in in 1947 when they partitioned uh, the land west of the uh, Jordan River to a uh, Palestinian an area for the Arabs and an area for the uh, for the Jewish state. This is continues to be this this mythology, this propaganda that uh, the land west of the Jordan River uh, 
belongs to these so-called Palestinians, which until the late 60s was a term that referred to Jews, then it was co-opted by Yasser Arafat. And uh, actually the term is uh, not, they, they were just the Arabs that lived west of the Jordan. There was no Palestinian state. There was no uh, nation there at all prior to uh, World War One and the closing of World War One. It was all part of the Ottoman Empire. So this is going to take place this week, and and um, the United States appears to be in opposition to it. If there is an appeal to the to the Security Council, then the United States is going to and is expected to veto that, and that would stop it there. But if they take it to the General Assembly, because there are so many Arab nations that are part of the General Assembly, and so many nations who in the world that are uh, anti-Israel or they are pro. Uh, Palestinian authority, then it, it appears that this would be a, a, a slam dunk and that they, there would be a recognition of the Palestinian state. So pay attention to this this week. Be in prayer that uh, this would not take place and that uh, be in prayer for the leadership in uh, the United States as well as in Israel. Uh, this is a crucial decision that is going to uh, shape one way or another the events in the Middle East for the coming uh, coming years. If a Palestinian state is uh, recognized, uh, you can bet that this is going to inflame the Palestinians and that there will be increased violence. There may be, uh, there's even an expectation that there might be a third intifada uh, against Israel. So this is something that we need to indeed uh, be in prayer about. So just put that uh, down on your calendar as a key thing for prayer this week. Colossians 1.24. Today I want to look at the last, the last two clauses in this verse. We spent the previous lessons looking at the first part of this verse in terms of adversity and how believers can have joy in the midst of adversity and the plan and purpose that God has for bringing adversity into our life. The second part of this this verse, which is the last two phrases, for the sake of his body, uh, which is the church, brings our focus into Paul's expression of the per- one of the purposes for uh, adversity, specifically the adversity that he is facing uh, in his own life. Let me read the verse. I, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. And so we see in this explanation that Paul gives for why he rejoices is a recognition that the suffering that he goes through in terms of his own life and his own ministry, all of the rejection that he faced, the fact that he was arrested on numerous occasions, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was uh, shipwrecked on several occasions, he went through uh, a variety of of sufferings, a variety of adversity and opposition and rejection, all for the sake of, he says here, for you. And that word you here refers specifically to the Colossian congregation. I now rejoice in my sufferings on behalf of you, 
or you all, that is specifically the, con- the uh, Colossian congregation. And he says, and I fill up or I complete in my flesh, that is in my uh, spiritual life as I'm living it out here in, uh, my, uh, in, in my physical life on the earth, I fill up or I complete in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And I pointed out in the previous lessons that the term here for afflictions in Christ comes from the Greek uh, verb or the Greek noun thlipsis, which relates to non-soteriological suffering of Christ on the cross. It doesn't refer to what takes place on the cross. The word thlipsis never refers to the suffering, the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. It refers to the suffering, the adversity the Lord Jesus Christ faced in his own spiritual life, which sets a pattern and a precedent and a model for us in how we are to face adversity and difficulties in life in terms of utilization of the Word of God and reliance upon God the Holy Spirit. So he is, he is the idea of filling up in my flesh what is lacking. He is continuing to be an example as the Lord Jesus Christ was an example in how to apply doctrine in the midst of adversity. And then he expands the reason for this in this last, these last two uh, clauses. For the sake of his body. Now, earlier he said, I rejoice in my sufferings for you because he's applying it specifically to the Colossian congregation. But now he expands it and he's not just you, the Colossian congregation, but on behalf of all of the believers in all of history for his body, for the sake of his body, which is the church. So today what I want to do is take us through a bit of an introduction to the doctrine of the church. Introduction to the doctrine of the church. This will come back into play as we get into the uh, second chapter of this epistle. There will be uh, a further development of the doctrine of the church. So I just want to summarize this in terms of an introduction this morning. First of all, the terminology that we have here for the church. This is the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia, actually it's a compound word. It is comprised of a root klesia, which is a noun formed from the cognate verb kaleo, which means to call. And the preposition that is attached as a prefix ek means means out of or from. So the etymology of the word, that is, if you break it down in terms of its its components, means to literally to call out a group. Some people stop there, which is means that they're guilty of what is called the etymological fallacy. A word meaning never is based upon its etymology, because when you take different words and you combine them together, uh, they often mean something more than just the sum of the parts. Sometimes they even mean something a little different from the sum of the parts. And word meaning is ultimately determined by usage. But etymology gives us generally a sense of a meaning of a word. Now, this word ecclesia is a word that is found far back into classical uh, Greek literature. Herodotus used it. Others used it back in Athens. And at that time, in the 5th century B.C., 
the word refer to just an assembly of the people, a political uh, assembly of the citizens who would come together in order to make decisions within the uh, democracy of Athens. So that was its root meaning. It just has this general meaning of an assembly, a gathering together of people. There's nothing special or spiritual about the meaning of ecclesia. It's used, in fact, in this way even in the New Testament in Acts 19.39 simply to refer to uh, a gathering of people together. There's nothing special. So that's what we might call that just the general normative secular meaning of the word. But as happens so many times in uh, study of Scripture, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will take a common word and he will bring it into the New Testament literature and assign it a little bit of a special meaning. Now, the word ekklesia is also used in the Greek translation known as the Septuagint, and that's abbreviated by the Roman numerals LXX, which which is the Roman numeral for 70, because the legend was that the 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the Torah uh, from Hebrew into Greek. And so it's called the Septuagint, meaning this related to sept for 70. And so that's why it's abbreviated LXX. And that in the Septuagint, in the Greek old translation of the Old Testament, it's used a number of times to refer to the congregation or the community of Israel. It, it, even though the Greek word ekklesia is used in the Greek Old Testament to translate the word are words for assembly, uh, gathering, congregation that are there from the Hebrew. It is not used with this technical meaning of the word church because it's not until we get into the New Testament that there is revelation given about this new body of God's people, body of believers, that comes into existence on the day of Pentecost. And so it's only with the ministry of the Apostle Paul and others that you begin to see this new word that's called the church. And in, um, in, our, very, in our passage here, as we get into uh, verse 26, we'll see that Paul talking about this uh, stewardship, this uh, administration or responsibility given him for the mystery which has been hidden from the ages. And that mystery, that term mystery, doesn't mean uh, what it means on the Masterpiece Theater uh, mysteries on Sunday night. It doesn't mean refer to a whodunit, a murder mystery, something of that nature. It refers to previously undisclosed information. And so there was in, there was in the Old Testament no indication that there would be something in the future known as the church. And why would that be? Well, if you just think about it a little bit, we understand that um, that the church comes into existence in Acts chapter 2 as a result of the fact that the uh, that Israel as a nation, in terms of their leadership and the people, rejected the claims of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Now, if it had been predicted in the Old Testament that there would have been a, a new entity in the future that God would bless, a new people of God called the church, then that would sort of indicate that there uh, was going to be a, some problem with, with Israel. So in order to set up 
Jesus' ministry and offer of the kingdom as legitimate without uh, giving any indication from the Old Testament of what the consequences would be, the church and the entire church age is left undisclosed, unmentioned, unrevealed in the Old Testament. You do not have a mention of the church or an indication that there is going to be a shift away from Israel in the New Testament until Matthew chapter 18, the first use of the word church by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there it it is uh, indicative of something changing in the future. And he doesn't mention it until after the events that are uh, described in Matthew chapter 12, which is when the leadership of the nation of Israel rejects his claim to be to be the Messiah. Starting in Matthew chapter 13 on is when we see Jesus beginning to teach that things will change, things are going to be different, and he begins to teach about the postponement of the kingdom and the nature of something new that is coming into existence. But ultimately it is left to the ministry of the Apostle Paul to teach and develop this mystery doctrine which relates to the this new entity, this new organism that came into existence on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. So this word ecclesia has a generic use for an assembly or congregation, and then uh, after Acts 2, it begins to take on a specific technical meaning of this new body of Christ that developed uh, only after A.D. 33. Second thing we note is that the word church or ecclesia is used in two different senses in the in the New Testament. It, the first sense has to do with the universal church, sometimes referred to as the invisible church, because we don't see it. We don't see a physical manifestation of the universal church. The universal church is composed of every believer in the church age from the initial believers on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33 all the way up to the rapture, which ends the the uh, age of the church, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ during that time is a member of the body of Christ, which is called the church. It is invisible. So uh, some are in heaven at this point, some are on the earth, and some have n- who will become members of the body of Christ haven't done so yet because they have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. But the word is also used with a local church or visible church connotation. The local church is any individual manifestation or gathering of a group of believers for the purpose of worshiping God on the basis of, of his word. Now, in the local church, as a visible church, is not composed solely of believers. The universal church is only believers. But the local church may have members that are not believers. They may be comprised of you have children, you have teenagers, you have visitors that come uh, to a local church, and they may not be a believer. But the perspective of the writers of Scripture is that most of those that they are writing to, the church at Colossae, the church at uh, Ephesus, the church at Laodicea, the church uh, at Rome, that the assumption is that most of those are believers and those these are being written to the believers 
uh, and the, in the church in those particular uh, locations. The third thing we need to recognize about what the Scripture teaches about the church is that the church is distinct from Israel in God's plan and purpose, that the church is distinct from Israel in God's plan and purpose, not only historically, but also in terms of our future destiny. In the Old Testament, God called out a special people in Genesis chapter 12. Before Genesis chapter 12, we have the incident of the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, the human race was still united in one language and probably just one ethnicity. There was no uh, physical factor that necessitated a separation or a distinction among the members of the human race. And so the depiction of the human race from from Genesis chapter 9, when the uh, Ark of Noah finally finds dry ground, and Noah and his wife, his three sons and their three wives come off of the ark. You have eight human beings who then become the new parents of subsequent generations of the human race. And it is a few generations go by. Remember, they're still living uh, several hundred years. Their age uh, links gradually diminish, but for the most part, they are living to be three, four, five hundred years of age. And as they come off the ark and begin to repopulate and to fill the earth as God has commanded them, uh, rather than scattering throughout the earth, they are becoming localized. And under the leadership of this uh, powerful uh, individual named Nimrod, who is antagonistic to God, who wants to set up his own kingdom, his own authority, uh, he brings together a group at, the, at Babel, and they build this tower in opposition to God. They are, as it were, trying to establish uh, the first United Nations where man is going to unite together in opposition against God. They're going to take upon themselves a messianic role to bring uh, peace and prosperity and the end of war uh, to, uh, to the human race. Now, you, some people don't understand why I always refer to the UN as a pseudo-Messiah, and that is because if you ever go to New York City, and you should go to the UN building sometime, and you will notice that outside of the UN, there is a scripture quotation over the entry to the UN building. It is a scripture quotation from uh, Isaiah chapter 2 in reference to the, uh, which in Isaiah 2 is a reference to the future millennial kingdom, that they will beat their their, their uh, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and man will make war no more. No more. So that verse in Isaiah chapter 2 is specifically a description of what the Messiah will do, what Jesus Christ will do when he comes to the earth and establishes his kingdom. So the UN is at its very core in terms of its stated purpose, a religious organization in competition with the biblical Messiah. So for that reason, we have to recognize that the UN is a pseudo-Messiah seeking to establish uh, peace and prosperity on the earth completely apart from God and and his word. So the Tower of Babel is this uh, precursor of many different international types of organizations, many different attempts by man to bring peace upon the earth apart from God. And it is at that point that because of what they're doing, God brings a judgment 
upon those at the Tower of Babel. And the judgment is that he is going to give them separate languages. He's going to divide the languages. And by dividing the languages, it's going to force them to break apart into distinct subgroups because uh, based on language because they can't understand each other. And as different groups become isolated on the basis of language, then you have certain uh, characteristics begin to dominate in those groups, and that develops different racial characteristics, and they break apart into different, uh, different nations and tribal groups and things of that, of that nature. Up through that point, God is working through the human race as a whole. But in response to what happened at the Tower of Babel, God called out Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He called out Abram as a counter-movement to the internationalism that was presented in uh, Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And so God is going to restrict himself to working through Abraham and his descendants through his son Isaac and Jacob, and it is going to be through that group that God is going to reveal himself so that the uh, Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be the custodians of the word of God, and they will be the ones to whom God reveals himself and gives his word, and so they are going to be responsible for writing it down and pre- preserving it. And it is through them that God is going to give and send the Messiah. And we've studied that uh, num- numerous times in the past. That is the mission for Israel. And so the Messiah came. He was born as a Jew from the tribe of Judah to be the king of Israel. But he came first to suffer, as was predicted by Isaiah 53 and numerous other passages in the Old Testament. He was, uh, he was rejected because in the first century, The expectation was that the Messiah would only come as a ruler, not as one who would suffer uh, to redeem his people. So Jesus was not uh, recognized or accepted. And because of that national rejection of Israel, God hit the pause button on his plan for Israel, and he began to work through a second group of people that he is calling out for his name as an international uh, missionary organization. In the Old Testament, Israel was to establish the theocracy by their obedience to God. God would richly bless them, and their nation and their culture would stand out as unique among all peoples on the earth. And so as your uh, uh, caravans would come through the Middle East, the cro- all crossroads were uh, in Israel, and as they came uh, to the Middle East, they would see this remarkable people and this fabulous nation, and then they would take the message about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back to their people. So that was a totally different from the way it functions in the church age where Jesus Christ sends uh, his people out into the world to take the message of the gospel to every tribe, to every people, to every language, to every nation. And that is still our ultimate mission as and for every believer to be involved in some way in the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. And there will come a time, though, when our mission is accomplished historically and this church age will end. It ends in what is referred to as the rapture of the church, described in First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 
when the Lord Jesus will return in the air and with the, uh, with the trump and the shout of, of the archangel, then those who are uh, dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together uh, with him in the clouds. That ends the church age. And then there's still seven years left over for Israel based on the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and that begins not with the rapture, but it begins when the future Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, and that begins, sets the timer going. God then takes his finger off the pause button, and things go forward for the last seven years uh, in Israel's history. So there are now two distinct people of God. And we have to maintain that distinction as we read through the scriptures. Now, So when it comes to the church, in terms of our fourth point, within the church universal, we learn from this passage and also Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, that there is an organization. And Christ is the head. He is the authority. That's the significance of the metaphor of head. It is the authority. It is that which directs the body. Uh, he is the head or authority of the church. This is seen in our own passage. We touched on this in Colossians 1.18, that he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, indicating that Christ is the, as the first fruits is the, with him, with his resurrection and ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. This is when the church began. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, we have a parallel idea. The he here is taught, the first he, the first third person singular pronoun references God the Father. The second one references God the Son. And he, that is God the Father, put all things under his feet, that is bringing all things under the authority of Jesus. And he gave him to be head over all things to the church. So Jesus is set by virtue of his, at the time of his ascension and glorification. He is placed as the head over the church, which then is defined as his body. This is a critical thing we have in Ephesians one twenty three as well as in Colossians one twenty four. this analogy, this picture that the church is a body it's depicted as an organism. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fits all in all. Now, when we think about this metaphor, the church being the body of Christ, I want you to think about it in this manner, that Jesus, as the Lord Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, entered into human history as a human being through the virgin conception and virgin birth. He enters into human history. His eternal nature, his eternal deity, took on or added to itself true humanity. Because of the virgin conception and birth, there is no transmission of the sin nature. And so he is born without a sin nature and lives his life without sin. He lives it in a physical body. That body that is the home of the person of the second person of the Trinity in hypostatic union, went to the cross. And on the cross, 
He bore, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he bore in his own body on the cross our sins in our place. And that penalty is borne by the Lord Jesus Christ between the hours of 12 noon and 3 p.m. As we are told, it was at that time darkness covered uh, the earth, the land in Israel at that time, so that the what is happening on the cross is shrouded in darkness as God the Father is imputing to God the Son the sins of all humanity. And it was during that time period that he pays the penalty in his body. And then that body is placed in the grave. And three days later, when Mary and Martha uh, and the other Mary come to the grave, they discover that the stone has been rolled back and the tomb is empty. The claws that uh, wrapped his body are lying there as if the body just dematerialized. And the physical body that was there is no longer there. And it has been transformed into a new body identified as a resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it still had continuity with his, the resurrection body still had continuity with his previous mortal body. We know that because when he appeared to Thomas, he was able to hold out his hands and point to his side, his feet, and say, see, feel the uh, the nail prints, feel the wound in my side, this is me. There, there, he didn't get a a different completely different body, one being destroyed and a new one being given, but that which was his former body was completely revamped and recreated into a new body that still had a measure of continuity with the original mortal body. Forty days later, that body is the body that ascended into heaven And in hypostatic union, there is a resurrected human body sitting at the right hand of God the Father. When that body was on the earth, the gospel of John tells us that he was the way in which we knew God was expressed through that physical body, finite though it was, it was expressed Uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That body has gone to heaven, but it is replaced on the earth by another body. And this other body that replaces his original body on the earth, which is now in heaven, is the body of Christ. It is the church. It is uh, the aggregate of all the members of the uh, of Christ by virtue of their salvation. So just as through the incarnation, Jesus revealed the Father, revealed the Father to mankind, so too one of the functions of the church is to be a manifestation of God, a, that by looking at the church, the idea is that we should be able to learn about God church hasn't done too good of a job at that down through the centuries for a variety of different reasons. But that is what our calling is. But as we learn from Scripture, in every dispensation, the people that are called out by God uh, fail because of sin. That doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means that it recognizes that until we have the second Adam, living upon the earth, ruling the earth, there will be no ultimate fulfillment fulfillment 
of God's original plan and purpose uh, for mankind. So the church is called the body of Christ. That term never applies to any other people in history. It is restricted to those who are believers in Jesus Christ between the uh, day of Pentecost, AD 33, and the rapture. Now, the fifth point is that our entry into the body of Christ occurs at the instant that we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. When we trust in him, that is the instant that we become a member of the body of Christ. There's a number of different things that happen to us simultaneously at the moment that we trust Christ as Savior, but they are not experiential. That is, we don't feel anything. Uh, we don't feel there's no necessary experience, physical or emotional experience that identifies that. In fact, we don't know about most that most of these things even happened until we study the Word of God over time and learn about what God did at that particular instant. And one of the things that occurs is referred to as the baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit, or it l- truly it should be, or literally it should be translated the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit to clarify uh, the use of the prepositions there. But this is, a non, again, a non-experiential event that occurs at the instant of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 1 through 3 tells us that in this baptism event that we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the sense the significance of baptism, the meaning is that we're, it has the literal meaning of immersion, but the significance of baptism at it, as it is used in numerous situations is of identification of one thing with something new. There is a transfer uh, from one status to another status. And so this identification that takes place wherein the Holy Spirit is used by Jesus Christ to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection, we are then placed in the body of Christ so that through the New Testament, we are de- the church is described as those who are in Christ. Again, a phrase that is not used of anyone else. You never find it in the Old Testament. You don't find it in Revelation after the rapture, in which occurs between Revelation 3 and Revelation 4. No mention of being in Christ. So it is uh, related to we enter into the body of Christ by virtue of our baptism by means of the Holy Spirit at the instant we believe in Jesus as Savior. Now, as we enter into the body of Christ, just as a physical body has many members, arms, legs, hands, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, there are many members that comprise a physical body, There are also many members that comprise the uh, spiritual body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in terms of these members that we come to understand uh, the significance of our individual role because we are thought of and described as members of the body of Christ. And in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as the Apostle Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he uses that analogy that some people are like kind of like an ear, others are kind of like a mouth, others are like a hand or a foot. We all play a different role and different function within the, uh, the picture of the body. 
Another way we, another metaphor we could use to describe that would be it's like we're all part of a team. Jesus Christ is the head of the team. He's the quarterback, and he calls all the shots and all the plays. And each member is a, like a different member of the team, and we all have a different role to play. And when we all play our uh, respective roles, then everything comes together in a perfect harmony and a perfect reflection of Jesus Christ, although that doesn't actually happen in history. That is what we work towards, and we come to learn what our spiritual gifts are and our role within the church through the study of God's Word uh, within the ministry of a, of a local church. Now, a couple of passages that use this analogy of members are found in Romans 12, 4, and 5, and 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 14. In Romans 12, 4, we read, For as we have many members in one body. So what we have is a recognition that there is a plurality of distinctions within the body, but yet there is one body. All believers are members of that one body of Christ. We have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now that's a really important phrase to pay attention to because we have a tendency in the United States to disregard that last phrase. This is one area in which our culture plays a negative role in helping us understand the Scripture. The United States was founded by in the colonial period by people who were rugged individualists. They were hyper, uber-individualists. They had the courage to leave everything that they knew, everything that made them comfortable in in England and in Scotland and in Ireland and a few other places to come over to the colonies to start their life completely over in a virtual wilderness. So the the original colonists down through the 1600s, 1700s, and into the early 1800s because we had such a rich heritage of people, immigrants following in those footsteps coming over here to make a new life for themselves, something that was built into... The American psyche is this concept of rugged individualism, isolationism. I don't need anybody else. I don't want anybody else. I can do it all by myself. I can make life work or not. That was the understanding of freedom is it's uh, it's the responsibility of each person to make life work or not. The government needs to stay out of it. Now, that's all well and good and fine and wonderful, but that's not the picture that we have in the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not a picture of individual members that are atomized. That means broken down into the smallest component and unrelated to one another. It's not a picture of a group of individuals that are atomized, isolated, and functioning on their own. It's not about your spiritual life, put those blinders on, and as long as I'm studying the Word in terms of my own spiritual life and I'm growing, then I am successful in that spiritual life. That's a complete, that, that is a view that has been fed and shaped by the 
ideal of rugged individualism in our American culture. doesn't mean that that's a wrong ideal, but that's not the model for understanding the body of Christ. The body of Christ says that we're members of one another. We are individually responsible for our own spiritual life, but there is also a function of our spiritual life that is related to and depended upon and serves one another. There is an interdependency between the members of the body of Christ. And and that's why the body is such a, a wonderful image is because you don't want to go along with a uh, scalpel and dissect every joint in your body and separate all of the different bones, break down your fingers and your toes and cut off your wrists, your hands and your arms and everything and think that they're all going to function separately and independently of each other. They are interdependent. There is a oneness. We can overstress the independence to the point that we lose the unity and the interdependency within the body of Christ. So Paul emphasizes both in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are one body in Christ and we are individually members of one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 14, he puts it this way. He says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being one are one body, so also is Christ. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. So we hold two things that have to be held uh, together, the, the significance of the unity of the body, which is never to be sacrificed You never sacrifice doctrine for unity. This is a problem. It's a unity of the faith, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, not a unity of experience, not a unity at the expense of doctrine, but a unity of the faith. But it is a unity. It is a real organic unity of all all believers within the body of Christ. And yet there are distinctions in terms of the uh, uh, giving, the distribution of spiritual gifts, so that some have, uh, and, and, and as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, some have more of a gift, some have less of a gift, some have a different blend of gifts, so that it's not the same. There are real differences, but everybody is crucial to the function of the team. Often people say, well, you know, it's all about, you know, the pastor. That's like saying, well, the, the, the football team, it's all about the quarterback. You take the quarterback out and, and the team falls apart. But if you take out any of the other players, the team falls apart. They are all important to the whole. And they all have to function together. The quarterback can't play the game all by himself. Everyone is important. And so there's this distribution of spiritual gifts. So we see that within the body, the Holy Spirit gives these gifts, which are basically spiritual enhancements or capabilities provided for each believer in terms of their ministry to other believers. There are no spiritual gifts that function in isolation of the body of Christ because the gifts aren't given so that you can use them at work so that you use them at school, so that you use them in terms of some social organization outside the body of Christ. 
That's not what Paul says. Now, you may use them. They may be used in other areas outside the body of Christ, but that's not why they're given. They're given so that we can serve one another, not outside the church. Even the gift of evangelism. The gift of evangelism, according to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, just like the gift of pastor-teacher, is for the equipping or training of the saints to do the work of ministry. We often think that the person with the gift of evangelism is like, like Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or some other known evangelist who goes somewhere and has a meeting and preaches the gospel and there is a great response. He's an evangelist and that's the gift of evangelism working. It is, but that's not why he's given the gift. Not according to Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. The evangelist is given the gift to equip the other members of the body of Christ so that they can be effective in evangelism. And so our gifts are given primarily for utilization within the body of Christ, which means there has to be a coming together and a gathering together of the body of Christ so that as a local body grows and develops and matures, that these gifts are developed and they operate first and foremost towards one another uh, within the body of Christ. So we have others who have the gift of leadership, the gift of mercy, the gift of administration. Uh, we have the gift of uh, pastor-teacher. All these gifts function to the body of Christ for the health of the body of Christ. They can have secondary application outside the body of Christ, but if it's not functioning to other believers, it's not functioning legitimately according to the primary purpose of Scripture. Now, as we think about this as a congregation here at West Houston Bible Church, there are different ways in which different people in this congregation manifest their gifts. There are people here, there are many people here who have wonderful gifts of, of helps or some translations or service. And that's a, that can be manifested in a lot of different ways. There's no gift of music. Now, you may have a natural talent for music, and because your spiritual gift is in the area of helps, then you get involved in the choir, you play piano or organ, things of that of that nature. Your natural talents or abilities then have a spiritual utilization in terms of your, uh, of your individual uh, spiritual gift. There are people who have the gift of, of administration, uh, they have different roles to play as deacons. They can also have other roles to play in terms of the organization of uh, prep school, in terms of the organization of, uh, of, of a summer camp, in terms of the organization of different things that operate within the church, from uh, the hospitality of the church and taking care of different, different functions like that. So these things blend, uh, blend together. Now, as I think about this, especially in light of some of the things that have happened in, in recent weeks, I thought about what are some of the things that should characterize a healthy congregation and that I would like to see really characterize West Houston Bible Church. Not that we aren't moving forward in many of these areas, but just as for all of us to be reminded of how this is to be manifested within our local body of believers. First thing that I think of is that if West Houston Bible Church has a reputation among the Christian community uh, in Houston or at large, 
It is that we are known for the fact that we love the Lord Jesus Christ, what he taught us, and how he expects us to live. That we love the Lord Jesus Christ and what he taught us and how he expects us to live. Now, I wrote it out that way for a particular reason. I wrote it that way because to love the Lord Jesus Christ biblically means that we have to know him. To love the Lord Jesus Christ biblically means that we have to know him. You can't love him if you don't know him. And how do we demonstrate that we know him and love him, according to Scripture? We keep his commandments. So that doesn't refer to the Ten Commandments. That relates to all of the mandates and prohibitions that we have in the, in the New Testament for the church, for the church age believer. In passages like John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now to love Jesus isn't just saying, oh, I have an emotional experience with Jesus and I love him. It means that it's exhibited by action, and that action is that you keep his commandments. But to keep his commandments, you have to know his commandments. So there's a focus there on the word. But I don't want to be known as a church that just knows the word, because knowing the word is an ends to a, is a means to an end. The end is that we are to develop a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that profoundly impacts our life. It's not a matter of having a great set of doctrinal notes. It's not a matter of having a good theological education. It's not a matter of just knowing all the facts in Scripture. We have to know all of that, but that is not the end. That is a means to an end. And the means to an end is obedience to Christ and application. John 15.10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We have to know them to keep them. So keeping them implies that we have a focus on knowing the Bible. That means that we need to be a congregation that is known as people who know the Scriptures. We know the Bible. We know the Bible, which leads us to an understanding of knowing doctrine. We don't just have a theology class where we learn a lot of principles. We need to know the Word of God. We need to memorize it. We need to learn it. As the psalmist said, that we need to hide the Word in our heart. 1 John 2, 3 says, Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Now on the alternate side, in his letter to Titus, Paul said about false teachers, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. You can't make a distinction between what we know doctrinally and what we, how we live our life, how we think and how we live. We can't create this kind of a, uh, a, a, a compartmentalization between the two. They, they go together. Knowing the word without applying the word is as useless as applying the word without knowing the word. Because when you, know, when you apply the word without knowing the word, it's just a system of ethics or morality. But it has nothing to do with applying the word because you don't know it. You're just living according to an, a, a system of ethics or application. So the first thing that should characterize us is that we love the Lord Jesus Christ, what he taught us and how he expects us to live, and applying that. Second thing is at being known as a church that has a genuine care and concern for one another. 
Now, this uh, having a practical, genuine care and concern for one another is a product of knowing the Word. It comes from you as an individual learning the Word, and it drives you to your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the byproduct of that is that as you grow, your spiritual gift, whether you know what it is or not, becomes manifest, and you serve the body of Christ. And you have a role. Every one of you has a role in that. It doesn't matter what your gift is ultimately because we're all expected to function in different areas of giftedness. But some have special giftedness. They have the gift of evangelism so they can train you to be an evangelist. So you're expected to be a witness and evangelize, but you have to have somebody to train you. Other passages in Scripture indicate that we should be able to teach one another, that we should admonish one another, that we should pray for one another. All these other one another ministries relate to utilization of areas or application in areas that are connected to spiritual gifts. But there are some within the congregation that excel in those areas, and they help the rest of us understand how to function in those areas. So we need to have a church that has this genuine care and concern for one another, and that's the consequence of being in the Word, walking by the Holy Spirit, and growing to maturity. It is not what you see in many congregations is an artificially manufactured system that is developed from the top down. What I mean by that is the leadership down. Let me give you an example. I know a lot lot of churches, I've been in a lot of churches, where there's been an emphasis on evangelism. We need to be a church that is known for evangelism. So we're starting an evangelism class every Wednesday night for the next 12 12 weeks, and we're going to go through some system or another, some program, and we're going to learn to evangelize, and we're going to go out and be evangelists. Usually doesn't work. It's an artificial manufacture of a top-down program because the people are not in love with the Lord Jesus Christ through his word with an internal motivation from their spiritual growth to go out and give the gospel to people. So it's artificial and it's superficial. And that happens in so many churches. The, the, The biblical ideal is that as you learn the word and as you choose to apply it in your life and as your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ matures, then these things will be the fruit, the product that comes from that in your life. If it's manufactured by a top-down program, then it's artificial. It's not a result of your spiritual life. It's a result of the church leadership coming down and making you feel guilty and putting you into some kind of a program. So we don't do that. Also, the this kind of a thing is not developed through through what I would call the official leadership structure of the church. Now, we've had some evangelistic things because we all asked Gene Brown to come, come in and teach us some things about how to do evangelism because that's his role as an evangelist is to help us be equipped uh, to do evangelism. But we need to grow and mature in our own relationship, and then this is manifested in a number of ways. So... One of the ways that we see this is that that we have believers who recognize the needs in other believers' life. That means you have to know each other. Now, we have to walk a fine line between uh, individuals' right to privacy and getting to know them and caring for them. Now, people are really different. 
There are some people who like to come in and go to a church, and they really are shy, perhaps. They're quiet. They're reserved. That's just their personality, and they don't really want to be known. They want to be relatively anonymous, so they slip in a little late or leave a little early, and they don't really talk to anybody. And hopefully someday those people realize that they need to get to know folks in the local church so that they can minister to those in the local church as they are ministered to within the context of the local church. But we can't force that on anybody. That's just going to come as a product of their their natural spiritual life and spiritual growth. But we have to recognize that as believers we do have these responsibilities toward uh, toward one another. Other folks, on the other hand, are just as gregarious and they just love to get to know people, and they come in a church door, and within five minutes they're introducing themselves to people. What's going on in this church? Who are you? What do you do? And they get to know people, that, and that's just part of their uh, their personality and the way that has uh, that has developed. So we have to understand that as a body of believers, there are people at different levels of growth. There are deep people with different personalities. But if we are to fulfill these one another commands that are in Scripture, we have to get to know one another. That's one of the reasons that we have functions like the church picnic in October and uh, some of the family nights, and we've had some uh, uh, luncheons after church and prayer time. It's so that that we can take that time to get to know people that otherwise we just see them come in and 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 leave. I was talking about a completely different subject with a a pastor friend of mine uh, this last week, and he, he we were talking about something completely separate from this, and he told a story about one time he he was uh, he had a couple that came to visit the church, and he said they came for four, about three or four Sundays, and they would come in right as the, they quit singing, and when he would say, uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, they would leave. And after the third Sunday, he told one of his deacons, he said, listen, I'm going to have you come up and close in prayer because I'm going to scoot out the back and try to catch those people and just find out who they are. And he did that. And when he got out there, he called them as they were coming out to their car, and he went up, he introduced himself as the pastor of the church. And he said, I've seen you visit the last two or three Sundays, but you leave so quickly I haven't had time to, to meet you. So I just wanted to introduce myself to you. And they say, well, we're really glad you did because this was the last Sunday we were going to give this church. It was so unfriendly. Nobody talked to us. Nobody, nobody introduced themselves to us. Nobody said anything to us. And we just thought it was ter- terribly, a terribly unfriendly church. And he said, well, have you thought about the fact that you come in late in the middle of the service when we finish singing and you leave before the closing prayer so nobody has a chance to, to meet you or get to know you. And they were just sort of stunned, and they went, oh, yeah, you're right. We, we, did, we didn't realize that. And it turned out this had been a, a couple. They weren't saved, and they had, they had been Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and this and that and everything in the world, and they, they were just weren't finding any answers. They just thought they would try Christianity. They chose this church, and they thought, well, this was it. We were, that was all we were going to give it. And they ended up becoming saved and being key members within the congregation over time. So, you know, people are different. And people aren't always that bright. God calls us sheep. It's not a compliment. It's not because we're smart. So uh, we have to recognize this, that there is this mutuality within the body of Christ. So um, we have the emphasis on loving one another, loving one another. And we find this again and again. Uh, mentioned in the scripture. In fact, 13 times we have this, this command in scripture that we are to love one another. And one of the reasons I bring this up 
at this particular time is I think it's important for us as a church to recognize that we have folks in this church, and we've always had folks in this church who have uh, special needs. There are folks who go through unemployment. There have been folks who have gone through uh, loss of a loved one. There are uh, different situations that have presented, and I've always been proud of the fact that there are different people in the congregation who quietly, unknown to other people, have gotten to know others in the congregation, some of those who are in need, and have really sacrificed. I know some cases where I can't, I, it goes beyond my comprehension. They've taken people out and put gas in their car. They have uh, done other things to help other folks who are in need. And right now, in one specific instance, as you all know, in terms of this last week and, and um, the, the, the death of Zachary Sinclair, this is a family that is going to really be in need of, of the local church ministering to them over the coming weeks. Not today, not this week. There's a lot of people there. As you know, at the time of death, there's always a lot of people around. But a week later, two weeks later, two months later, everybody else gets on with their life, and they're still going through a difficult time. And people who know them and who come to know them need to be there for them. That's part of the body of Christ. It happens, as I've seen it over the uh, life of this congregation, when there have been several uh, husbands who have died. And there are others, widows in the congregation, who have, from their own spiritual life and their own ministry, have taken it upon themselves to get to know uh, those women and to minister to them. That is a healthy local church. And this is just an encouragement that that is what we do as a body of Christ. It's not just about coming to Bible class and learning the word. That is simply the means to an end of building a a healthy congregation that ministers in a number of different areas, but ministers above all to one another. Next time we'll come back and go into the next verse where we focus on the mystery doctrine of the church age. And uh, we'll be back here again next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to focus on these things, to be reminded of why you have called us out. You've called us out to be a distinct group of people within the world. We have a mission to take the gospel to everyone in the world explain the good news, and this is done either primarily in terms of our own life or secondarily through uh, missionaries that we support as well as through just the uh, teaching ministry of the local church. But our learning of your word is towards an ultimate goal of reflecting your whole character as the present visible body of Christ on the earth and that this involves all these various ministries that have been enhanced through the spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit so that we may minister to one another in all these different ways. Father, we pray that you would challenge us in terms of our own spiritual life as we are involved personally getting to know others within the congregation and as we develop those, those ministries. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here today that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, never understood how they could have eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins. He died on the cross as a sacrifice 
paying our sins, every sin in, in human history, so that we would not have to somehow earn that salvation because it's impossible for us to do so. All we can do is rely upon his work on our behalf, and we do that by trusting in him and him alone. Now, Father, we pray that as we leave today that uh, the things that we've studied, the things that we've learned today would be a real focal point for us in terms of our own spiritual life and that God the Holy Spirit would use it to challenge us and push us towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.